Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Talking to Change, a motivational interviewing podcast. My name is Sebastian Kaplan, and typically I'm based in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, although today I'm coming to you from Derry, Northern Ireland, where I am joined by my good friend, Glenn Hines. Hey, Seb. Hey, everybody. Yeah, so Glenn and I are together, and we were just talking. It's been four years since we were in the same physical location doing a, an episode, so... Uh, I came over across the pond to uh, to hang out a bit and to record this and to do some work on our podcast here. So this is uh, a lot of fun. And so just to well, just just to remind the audience, uh, Glenn, what are the ways that people can uh, reach us? Fantastic. As always, you can get in touch with us on Twitter at Change Talking. On Instagram, it's Talking to Change Podcast. On Facebook, it's Talking to Change. We've recently released a webpage where you can get all episodes, and that's podcast.glenhines.com. And our email address for questions, suggestions, and any other queries is podcast at glenhines.com. Great. So this episode's going to be a bit different than the last several episodes. We do have a guest who we'll introduce shortly, but it's not going to be a topic like, you know, a recent topic that we had about motivational interviewing and uh, working with people experiencing grief, for instance. We have reached out to our friend and colleague, David Rosengren, who was on our podcast on episode 11, for those interested. David is, uh, as I said, a friend and colleague and and very much a uh, well-regarded trainer with a lot of insights on some of the best ways to, to learn about and practice motivational interviewing. So we reached out to David as three sports fans. So for those who aren't aware, uh, sports media is full of top 10 lists, top five lists, top 100 lists, you pick the number. But it's, uh, it's a very, you know, kind of a, a gimmicky thing that sports media do to generate some interest and content and reaction on social media and things like that. So we reached out to David with the idea, what if we did a top three list where Glenn and David and myself chose our top three training questions. Now, top could be most frequent, most interesting, most challenging. So we're not overthinking the word top there. But basically, for each of us to generate three common questions that we get in trainings, and for us to have an episode built around our nine questions, or 10, perhaps, we'll see how many we end up with. And just have a discussion that could be useful for trainers, certainly, because if you're training in MI, you're probably getting these questions also. Or could be useful for people that are practitioners that are looking to implement MI, and some of these training questions might help inform their practice. So that is the way we're going to structure this today. Hopefully you all enjoy it. I'm sure we will. And so without further ado, we're going to introduce our guest, David Rosengren. So David, welcome back to the podcast. Tell us, uh, yeah, tell us a little bit about what you've been up to these last few years and what, what, what you're doing with yourself. Yeah, well, thanks for having me back, fellas. It's great to be here. And I just want to know beyond sort of all the ways we can reach you, where can we get the merch? Where can we get the merchandise? Because <laughs> we want to, you know, have the Glenn and Seb show, talking to change, you know, the pictures of you guys. So I think that's part of what needs to be done here. Um, in terms of what I'm up to these days, I work for an organization called Prevention Research Institute, and we are interested in how do we prevent alcohol and drug problems from happening and looking at across uh, across the spectrum of from people who are just 
out there living their lives and may run across alcohol and drug stuff to folks who've gotten into trouble. So that's where we spend most of our time in thinking about how and what are the ways to best address those things. I'm also busy doing MI training. We're, I'm writing a book with uh, Lynn Johnston and Charlie Hilton about MI from the inside out. So busy doing that, learning new things about self-practice and self-reflection, thinking a lot about deliberate practice and, you know, just kind of living life. Intriguing stuff. And certainly that idea of motivational interviewing from the inside out, that'll trigger a lot of people's curiosity. So we're looking forward to the, the release of that book and maybe having the three of his own when that becomes available. And in the work that you're doing, David, with with alcohol developing problems and becoming problematic, where is the marriage for you or is there a marriage for you between that work and the work that you're doing around motivational interviewing? Or are there different things that you do specifically for alcohol away from MI? There are some things that we do different uh, away from MI there, but the, you would definitely see MI infused in everything that we do, both as an organization, how we think about training people to use our programs and then within the programs themselves. And it's really all about getting people to think about where are they in their life, what's most important to them, and how do alcohol and drug choices fit into all that? Where does their risk lie? And what do they want to do about any of those things? So those are all very familiar concepts to your folks who are both MI practitioners and MI trainers. So they would recognize it pretty quickly. Outstanding. Yeah. And I echo uh, Glenn's comments about your book. Very um, interested to see what, what that will become or what will become of that. So, okay. So shall we get into our, our top lists here? Yes, I'm looking forward to this. It's going to be fun. Yeah. All right. Great. Well, why don't we, um, you know, guests first. So what we're going to do for just to orient listeners, we'll ask David to start and David will pose his question. And when one of us poses a question, the other two will respond first. There will be an invitation for the other two to, to kind of consider what the question is and consider how we might answer it. And then we will end with the person who asked the question to give their thoughts on it. And then we're going to rotate each question between the three of us like that. Okay. So uh, yeah, David, what's your first question? Well, let's start with one that was actually on the MI listserv back when we had a listserv for the Mint Network of Trainers. But it's one that comes up in training as well. And that is, why does listening help? What is it about listening that helps people? So what immediately arises for me then is it's the fundamentals. My understanding is it's the fundamental aspect of any help and whether it's motivation interviewing or any other aspect of the support that we provide people. And for me, that arises because human beings are social creatures. We live and work in groups. It's in our relationships that we thrive. It's, it's in the connections that we have, that we flourish, that I can't become myself on my own. And the most profound way of connecting is having someone else understand me and the way that that's, that experience is you actually giving me your attention. You know, I think that's the thing to understand, that listening is giving someone your attention. And certainly when I'm, when I'm talking to my students, what I'm encouraging them to wear is the greatest gift you can give to someone else is your full attention because now you are in their world, they are in your world, and there is that experience of, being valued and accepted. And I think that's where the healing exists in that place, that the nature of human beings is that we have the capacity to heal ourselves. And I think that's fundamental to motivational interviewing, that we believe that 
and that the way we show that trust in your ability to heal yourself is I'm going to listen to you, genuinely curious about who you are with the full knowledge that most, if not everything you're looking for is already inside of you and I'm just going to help you discover it by listening to you. So it's it's more of, a, I guess, an experiential slash interpersonal benefit, I guess, to listening. The, the, the person, how that person experiences the listener, how the client feels perhaps about themselves as they are in the presence of someone who is valuing them and, and caring enough to listen. Yeah, sometimes you say that because then there's, it identifies it. First of all, there's my experience of you listening to me, but there's also the fact that there's something about the fact that you're prepared to listen to me that creates value within myself. I learned to value myself by the fact that you have valued me and that so that there's that two-way process that, that I'm helping you believe in yourself by already believing in you. Mm. And my efforts to believe in you are that I want you to believe in yourself so that you can get on with this. And ultimately, that you will pass this on because I got this from somebody else. Mm. And I think that's the important bit is it that I didn't create this. I'm simply a conduit. And when it comes your turn, you may wish to pass it on. You have to get it to give it away. Yeah, so many levels... In terms of that answer, it's it's connection with others, it's connection with yourself, it's about knowing yourself, it's about having someone else know you in a way that allows you to look and see and be valued in a way that you might not have had before, and then be able to draw on those resources and potentially to connect with others now that, that you've had that experience. Mm. Nice. So... I guess my, in hearing the question, why does listening help? I'm drawn to a rather practical, almost almost obvious answer of if two people are talking and the intention or the assumption is that one person's there to help the other, well, that person needs to know what the other person's asking for or, or struggling with and, and needs to know it accurate, needs to have an accurate idea of what what's going on for the other person so you know just from a, a really obvious place i mean listening you got to be able to listen to help somebody now it's not just a one-way street though and sometimes the act of listening can help the client better craft or understand or formulate what their struggle is and so it's it's certainly not one way there's there's a back and forth that goes to it but but uh, I guess I, I'm drawn to just the just the really obvious answer. You got to understand what the person's coming to, and therefore you need to to listen to them. Yeah. So it's really, in some ways, this sense that I'm not preparing my response to you. Instead, I'm really standing in a position of trying to deeply understand who you are and what's going on with you, so I can respond in a way that's helpful around that. And and in that process, not only do I understand you better, but you understand yourself more deeply. And perhaps we come to a better solution that way. Right, exactly. Coming to the better solution and, and listening being a necessary part of that. Yeah, that's that shared. It's back to that point you're raising, Seb, which is I'm here to be helpful to you. And that's decided by you, not by me. And mm-hmm. only you can tell me if I'm being helpful. So it's that stepping back that you're describing, David, that being curious, that being open to guidance from the client in relation to that's helpful, that's not so helpful. You're getting it. No, you're not getting it. And I guess what's really important about that then for us helpers is that when a client is telling us that what we're doing isn't helpful, that we shouldn't take that personally. We shouldn't take that as a criticism in a, in a way that then, then 
gets us defensive. It's simply recognising you misunderstood. Here's some guidance to help you understand. So and from, from your own perspective then, David, what other thoughts do you have about why listening is so important? So I just have to tell the audience, so we are on a podcast and it doesn't help you to know that I'm sitting here nodding my head to everything that Glenn is saying because you can't see that. So I'm in full agreement. I think that this is a multi-layered thing, which you all have really sort of laid out elements of really nicely trying to understand it. I don't feel like I have a pat answer. It's more like we, you know, peeling the onion and we go down and we go down and down and we find more and more. I do think that there is clearly an element of we stop focusing on ourselves and we start focusing on the other person. And so it becomes, we're sort of putting the relationship right in terms of who should be in charge of all of this and the change that's going on. So there's that relationship piece and and where's the power dynamic lie? I think you're absolutely spot on, Seb, about understanding what the issues are for the other person. We have to make space to do that. Steve Rolnick likes to talk about clutter in our heads, that we've got all these things we've learned and know, and that just gets in the way sometimes of really listening. And we're if we can clear that out and really focus on the other, then we can clear out some of that clutter and really hear what the person is saying. I do think that there's an essential element of connection that motivational interviewing gets at, but listening gets at in a very basic kind of way. And we don't have to do motivational interviewing. It's just good sort of social connection. And DC and Ryan, who I you know, I know you've had um, Richard Ryan on your program before talk about this, those three basic psychological processes. I think listening causes connection. I also think it helps people feel competent in their own lives. As they're talking about what's going on, they can sort of see how these things fit together and they make sense of those things in a way that's more deeply understood. And then the autonomy aspect, I think, is there as well. They feel like the captains of their own ships. So I I think all of those elements are at play there as well. So I'll just kind of stop there because I think we can continue to dig and dig and dig Mm -hmm. about what's important here. But I but I know we've got other questions, and I don't want to take all the time for one. Yeah, good point. So maybe, Seb, you want to ask the next question? Yeah, sure. A lot of my clinical work is with young people, children, adolescents, young adults, and therefore a lot of the training opportunities I have are with others who work with young people. And so I often get this question over the years of basically how young can a client be to where MI can be useful or, or maybe put sometimes put in another way is, are there limits or do you get to a point where someone's too young to really benefit from some of the skills and processes in MI? Do you want to kick that one off, David? Sure. I think it's a really interesting question. And I think if we're really thoughtful and working um, with the other as competent in the realm that they're in, then we just simply scale what it is we're doing according to the age of the individual. Now, is there a downward level? Can two-year-olds have the same kind of conversation that seven-year-olds have, that 15-year-olds have? Yeah, they're all different. So I think we we can have good conversations, but they're different sorts of conversations at those different ages. 
So I don't know that I would put an arbitrary limit on you can't do this if if the child doesn't have this level of reasoning, they're unable to be a recipient of this kind of communication that's really focused on the other and trying to understand what they want and assist them in, in getting there. If we look back in some classic texts like parent effectiveness training, what Thomas Gordon was talking about is really listening and respecting your kids and working with them at the level that they're able to work at. So I think that's the approach that I would take rather than a hard and fast rule. But I do think that it's probably easier with adolescents than it is with you know preteens than it is with young children. But if we scale, I think we can do it down to a pretty young age. Yeah, and I guess what it also identifies is that each one of us is cut from a different cloth and some of us are more inclined to lean in one direction more than another. So it may be that it's it's me that has the difficulty with the fact that this is a seven-year-old rather than this seven-year-old not being open to or receptive to this intervention. And maybe that's the way to think about it too as well, that, you know, there's, again, the two-way process, what's this like for me and what what can I do differently that will make it more accessible or available that I'm trying to be helpful but again, it's the point that you're making is, is that if we can open our mind to receive the wisdom of this other, whatever age they happen to be, then we're going to get to know them as they are. And it's in that place then as a, as a wise individual, we can continue to be kind and understanding and loving and encouraging for that part of them to blossom, whether they're a three-year-old, a six-year-old, a nine-year-old, a 12-year-old. I suppose I'm just thinking I can be steered on this. But I don't know how often we're ever actually going to get into a therapeutic relationship with a three-year-old. I guess there there may be people out there doing it, following traumas or whatever else. So I have to say that that's not the world that I work in. So following your your lead, I, I would say that what I would endeavor to do is to lean into the, the, the young person and follow their responses to whether I'm being helpful or not. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it makes, makes sense. So, Seb, what are you thinking? Are you looking for change talk with three-year-olds? <laughs> right, yeah. Well, I, I, that, that actually brought up another kind of simple rule, perhaps, is if someone is old enough to be in an office with a clinician by themselves, they're already expected at some level to do the work that someone much older is expected to do, you know? And so I guess that's one way of thinking of it. You know, if you as a clinician have a five-year-old or a six-year-old, I think you're right, Glenn, three-year-olds, that might be pushing it. But I've, I've certainly worked with colleagues who worked with young people, five, six, seven years old. And if they're in there, then they're responding to your comments. They're answering questions. They're, I don't know if they're talking about the future in the same way that a 17-year-old would, but they might be uh, talking about the future at some level. So, so maybe in some ways a, a clinician will answer that question for themselves just by nature of who they're working with. And whether it's a clinician or a teacher, you know, the context would matter there. But as far as what I do, and it's funny, David, you just referenced Steve Rolnick. Perhaps we'll be doing that a lot today. I don't know. But I think about a response. So let me, let me offer some context here. So Steve Rolnick, myself, and Richard Rushman, we uh, several years ago, we authored a book on motivational interviewing in schools. And so... Uh, I had the privilege of training with both of them uh, in different conference-type settings shortly after we published the book. And I was in a, a training 
when we received this question and I got to hear Steve's answer, which I, I, I really appreciated and, and kind of draw back on, uh, he acknowledged the differences in age and developmental differences and such. And then he, he kind of asked back to the audience. He said, what young person do you know that doesn't appreciate getting recognized for their achievements? What young person, you know, wouldn't appreciate some choice in their life? You know, you're getting the point. And so the way he was, he was kind of taking each concept within MI and basically asking back to the audience, do young people like to be affirmed? Do young people like to have their autonomy supported? And it was a really great way of responding to it. It wasn't about, you know, citing research, which, by the way, there's very little research on young, young children in MI. So in some ways, we don't really know. But we, we do have a sense of what young people will respond to from grownups and what young people's needs are. Um, you know, you referenced DC and Ryan's and self-determination theory work. Well, a lot of that is, has been applied to early educational context. So so that, that's kind of how my answer is. However, I'll also, one of the things that I do reference is, um, I do reference a paper, and I'll just briefly give the title and such. So this is a paper, paper entitled, Using Motivational Interviewing with Children and Adolescents, A Cognitive and Neurodevelopmental Perspective, authored by Gil Strait and colleagues, published in 2012 in Advances in School Mental Health Promotion. So they wrote a, a paper, you know, seeking to, basically answer those questions, again, from a developmental perspective on the application of MI with different age, young person age groups. And they did express some caution taking what they considered to be the neurological and developmental processes that are called for in an MI context and saying, you know, the, basically the younger you go, the more challenging and perhaps you get to a point where you're really not able to facilitate a conversation in this way with, with a young person. So I do like to reference this paper when I'm asked this question. Yeah, it also makes me think about uh, the idea that particularly teenagers, we've heard of adaptations made for motivation of working with adolescents and the idea that an open-ended question can be just too big for an adolescent's mind. So we offer an open-ended question with a multiple-choice answer so that the, the brain, as it changes, isn't getting exploded by this big concept. Uh, so I guess that maybe that's one of the things for us to consider is, is that there's adaptations to the approach that we use, but it's the, the spirit and the intention remains constant. Yeah, that, that makes perfect sense to me. And it, it makes sense if we think about it in terms of realms of other sorts of therapies that would be used, for example, with young children, like play therapy, where we, you know, the, the child leads. So autonomy is big and we as the therapist follow and listen and, and offer thoughts and kind of observations about what's going on but the child knows their own mind and any of us who are parents certainly know that three-year-olds know their own mind at times and we may not want them to do what they intend to do but by golly they are committed to it and so we need to be thoughtful in terms of how we respond to those things and recognize also that mi may not be appropriate for every circumstance that there are some limits that parents will have to set and that practitioners may have to set about what will and won't work in a particular circumstance so that's the the scalable element again yep okay fantastic so glenn let's take it over to you for your first question 
Thanks. And when I was thinking about this, one of the things I considered was we could talk an awful lot about how we teach MA and talk about it in the context of practitioners. But my first question is, is the type of question you might hear as a practitioner from a client is, so how is what you do any different from other people that I've been to see? <laughs> oh, what a great question. Yeah. Like, what are you going to do that's any different than my mates? Yeah. 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 Well, I think to begin with, we offer a quality of listening going back to that question that doesn't often happen with people's mates. If people do have friends like that, they're really fortunate. But most often what happens in those kinds of encounters is people are simply waiting their turn to tell them what to do, what they should think, or what the correct course of action is. That's a common sort of thing. So I think part of what we do is we listen in a way that gives you the opportunity to be in control of your own choices around this rather than telling you what to do. So that's one of the ways it would be different. I'll stop there and see what Seb has to add. Yeah, no, that, that's a that's a great one. I'm also thinking something about the nature of friendship and that closeness that a friend or, or a spouse or, you know, a parent, that those relationships are extremely valuable in lots of ways. And sometimes the, the care and perhaps the urgency of a particular problem when put in the context of that kind of a relationship might lead the friend or the partner or the parent to respond in ways that may be less helpful. You know, it, there, there could be more, more of a tendency to lecture or urge someone to, you know, you can't keep doing this X, Y, or Z behavior. And, you know, many people appreciate that kind of care and that kind of passion. And so this isn't, so I guess I might say, well, this wouldn't be a replacement for those kinds of conversations. But what I will strive to do and do my best to try to achieve is to listen carefully, to try to understand where the, where you're coming from, and I guess start from a place of seeing what you already know about whatever it is that you're struggling with and pair what you know with what I know about what's worked for other people and see if we can kind of find something together that you'd find ultimately helpful in, in progressing forward with, with whatever you're going through. Yeah, so you're acknowledging the efforts of friends and loved ones to be helpful while recognizing that the client or the service user's experience of those efforts to be helpful haven't necessarily been received or experienced as helpful in themselves. And it's from that point then it's saying, and what I'm going to endeavor to do is I'm going to endeavor to do what they're trying to do, which is to be helpful, but I'm going to approach it from a slightly different angle. And I'm going to include you in that discussion and we're going to, we're going to work out together what you find helpful and whatever it is I have that you will find helpful, I will offer it to you. And if there's anything I don't have that you need, I'll help you explore where else you might get it for yourself. I love that idea that we're building on, we're not going to put anybody down to make ourselves good. You know, it's, it's, it's consistent with the spirit of motivation that we're affirming those other people because they belong to that client. Um, and mm -hmm. that, um, that in affirming the other ones, it can help change their experience and potentially frustrations or annoyances that may be impacting on those relationships outside of our room. Uh, so there's a potentially a reparative 
work being done in those relationships in the just the way we identify with that with that other person. Yeah, I like that and it's it's similar to my own thoughts on that, which were, you know, my job isn't to fix you because I'm not seeing you as broken. I'm curious to how what I have may be helpful to you. We're gonna have a conversation where, you know, there's two experts. I'm keen to find out what it is you're gonna to bring to it and ultimately you're gonna make make all the decisions, including whether you come back. And my job is to try and make this an environment where you would want to come back. And that's what this first conversation is going to be about. What would make you want to come back? And what is it I have that you would find useful? Thanks for that. Let's let's quickly then move on to the second round of questions. So if it's okay, if we go straight then to yourself then, David, what's your second question? My second question would be, well, should, and this is kind of a hard one. So let me just give you a little background that influence is one of those things in MI that we feel a little uncomfortable with, right? Around influencing people. Should we influence them or not? Is it okay to or not? And the question is this, should MI practitioners work to be powerful influencers of behavior? Right. Yeah, we've had discussions on the listserv and people have offered different perspectives on this word influence. And and I guess you know if some if listeners are wondering like what's the big deal I I guess it 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 kind of is juxtaposed to the idea of autonomy support all right and so I guess how the the struggle here the tension is how do you support someone's autonomy while influencing them can, can that happen together which maybe that's a separate question I guess without really getting into the nitty gritty of the word influence and how we want to define that maybe I what I think I would find myself doing there is, I guess, kind of reframing the question and getting away from the word influence, quite honestly, and th- and really sort of asking somewhat rhetorically, do we want the work that we do with clients to matter to them? Therefore, how does it matter? Like, how do we make a difference? And I guess I'll also think about another colleague of ours, Terry Moyers, who we've had on the on the podcast a couple of times, uh, a faculty at University of New Mexico, and uh, she's often referenced. And maybe others can help me. You guys can help me with this. The waitress test, I think, is what she calls it. And, and I think what Terry says is, you know, if you picture a waitress, a server, I guess maybe the better way to phrase it these days, at a restaurant who's working hard on their feet for ten hours at a time, struggling to make ends meet and working to make tips and paying their taxes that if their taxes are going towards clinical settings where therapists are working with clients, we better make sure that that waitress is paying for good service. And we want the work that we're doing to matter. We want clients to have good outcomes. Um, so I guess that's how I would how I would answer. Yeah, and it's quite a challenge for all of us to consider, you know, is what you're doing worth the efforts of everybody else's uh, rules where they pay the taxes and and because it comes down to I think that question of philosophy and values if we're being honest we are trying to influence people because we have a picture of what is what a human being is capable of being or who they are being and we are holding that space for them to grow into and the, the wider that space can be the bigger we believe this individual can become. And that in itself is a, a mindset, or as Steve talks about, the heart set, 
that I'm not trying to control you, but there are things I'm, I'm going to, even in the way I make reflections, uh, is going to be influenced by my understanding of who you are, who I am, what my role is. So the, the directive nature of what it is we do, I, I, I always think back to when I was a drug therapist. When you came to see me, I always, you know, the understanding is I believe your life will be better if you are drug free. Now, whether you choose to follow that path will be up to you. But in every opportunity I see to influence the possibility of you taking that path to a better life, I will be inviting you to be curious about it. And I think that's the, that's where the balance and the ethics come into this. There's an invitation to participate in this way of thinking, in this way of understanding, in this way of, of experiencing life. Because I believe that you will be a better person and as a consequence the world will be a better place if you can become who you can be. Yeah. It is one of these points of real tension for us, I think, as MI practitioners and MI trainers around this, because we are support people's autonomy, as you're saying, and at the same time, we do have aspirations, or if we want to be more prosaic, we have agendas, Mm. you know, that, you know, if we're working at a drug and alcohol agency, our goal is to help reduce high-risk alcohol and drug choices, that's the agency's agenda and it's our agenda. So it's how do we acknowledge having that and at the same time supporting this individual to make their own choices about their own life that fit with their own values. I mean, that's that's the real tension point that for many people feel. And what's really interesting about this is there are many points at which if we take the word influence out, we may impact people or have, you know help them make changes in the directions that they want to make. And some of these are more apparent to us and some are less apparent. So a great example of this is we were encouraged to offer information sparingly, right? That's one of the things we talk about within motivational interview. We want our clients, the people we work with, to come up with their own solutions. And then we offer some things in addition to that or some ideas in addition to that. Well, what the research from folks like Shaldini would say is the less frequently you offer something, the more powerful it becomes for that individual. So by the scarcity of that information, you've actually made it a more powerful influence. Now that you know that information, should that be something that we're actively aware of when we share information or not? And this is the conundrum I think that we have as practitioners of knowing ourselves, knowing our craft, knowing our values, knowing the client's values, and how do we put all these things together? And I think it is a it is a constant struggle. It's not an easy one. And I know if we had our colleague Alan Zuckoff on here, he would have all kinds of feelings and thoughts about this. But the the basic idea to my mind is that we need to struggle with it and be be aware of it and be thinking about it and always have our client be first. Their autonomy is the most important thing. We want to find out what matters to them and help them work towards that. And once we know those things, be transparent about what our agenda is. is just as you were saying, Glenn, that, yeah, I would like to have you stop your alcohol and drug use, but that's going to be your choice, not mine. So what about you, Seb? Next question. Next question. Let's see. So 
This next question in trainings usually comes after a bit of time getting into the into the nitty gritty of, of the core skills, in particular reflective listening. And, you know, maybe even after the, the trainees have been practicing for a bit and, you know, maybe seeing a role play or two. And the question is, well, you know what? Reflections might be great for some clients, but my clients are a lot harder. What do I do instead? Or what do I do with my clients that are much harder than yours? I'm laughing here. You guys can't see this because this is such a common sort of statement in a train, particularly in an agency setting, right? Is that people say, you don't understand about my clients, our clients, who they are, how difficult they are. And I think that this is one of those for us as trainers, thinking about dissent among our participants in the same way that we would think about it amongst uh, as a practitioner, that these are folks saying, hey, hold on a minute. The things you're talking about here may make some sense, but I have had some other experiences here too. And I'm not sure I'm really ready to buy off on all of this stuff that you're selling. And that's kind of what it feels like at this point is that you're trying to sell me something. And so my initial response is, I don't want to sell you anything here. Um, <laughs> that it's really up to you to decide all that. So that's the stance that I want to take. In response to that specific thing, it's, uh, you know, it's responding in the same way that, to my mind, that we would with a client that, yeah, these are some difficult folks who have some real challenges. Let's see if we can work this out together. Are you willing to play that person so we can see what we can do together to try and do that? And then I'm drawing in the rest of the group to be my consultants and say, okay, I want you guys to tell me when I get off track or when I get stuck or when I don't know something that I should know here. And let's just see what we can do. Yeah, so you're that. describing, in psychodynamic terms, you're describing a parallel process, which is as the trainer, we are in the role of the therapist and the trainee is the client in a, in a different context, which is they're not presenting as a difficult client. They're simply telling us of their truth. This doesn't make sense. Mm -hmm. This doesn't work for me. I've been doing this for years, and here you are, this upstart turning up, trying to tell me that it's year zero, and we're going to do it a new way. I'm not convinced yet. And yeah. so the way you're describing it is just the opportunities to model the spirit of MA, to model the approach with the individual themselves, which is to be curious, which is to be, underst to be understanding throughout. So it seems like this for you, or it sounds like this for you, or you're experiencing this, and it's really important for you that I understand that you work a long hours with in, in difficult situations, and you're you're putting your heart and soul into it, and the the only way you're prepared to make changes is if I can offer you something that makes what you do more effective, because that's what you're keen on doing. You're wanting to be helpful, and I like that. What you're saying is, let's try it, and I'll show I'll show you what I do. And you tell me if you think it's useful. So there's that real openness to here's my logic and mm -hmm. I'm willing to show you me doing it. And if you like either or both, you're welcome to it. But you're also mm -hmm. recognizing there are more than one ways to help people. Motivational viewing is one of them. It's not the way, it's our way. And if you're telling me you paint one side of people blue and one side of them red and then if they're fully functioning, content human beings, I will tell you, keep doing that then. I'm not here to tell you to stop doing what you're doing if it's working. I'm here yeah. to help you. I'm here to help expand what you're doing. The very thing that I think we're trying to do with our clients is they got this far without us. How did they do that? Let's help them build from there. Mm -hmm. 
How's it sound? You said, yeah, no, this is great. I'm definitely going to draw on some of this next time I'm asked because I'm sure I will. Yeah, I, I guess it's there's a stepping back that happens when these questions come up. If it's like if there's the expectation for me to describe how a reflection is going to work with a trainee's client base or client population, I think I'd be pretty transparent or feel comfortable enough to say, you know what, it might not. It might not work. You know, I, and, and I think both of you have, have alluded to this idea that, you know, MI is not for everybody, you know, that kind of thing. But then, you know, then kind of getting into the weeds a little bit, maybe you may, maybe taking the opportunity, if it makes sense in the training to like explore a person that trainee is, you know, working with. Right. And, you know, t- tell me, t- let me just hear a little bit about what this person's struggling with. It sounds like they're, they're going through a whole lot and therefore you're really kind of wrestling with how best to help this person. I would be quite open to asking the trainee, what have they found to be helpful themselves? You know, and, and like you're saying, Glenn, the, the point here in my being in this training is not to undo everything that people are doing. It's to add to what's already happening. Now, you know, I, I think there's probably some truth to the idea of if that trainee is saying, well, reflections are great with some clients, but not mine then they're probably struggling with what they're doing too. And if they're pushing back on reflections, so maybe they're kind of wrestling with the skill of reflective listening themselves and having a hard time either grasping it or kind of formulating the reflection linguistically. And maybe it's, their, I guess, another psychodynamic idea of sort of projecting it on, oh, my clients won't respond to this. And and so it, it's also a, the kind of thing that I, if for instance, it were a two-day workshop, let's say, that's something I would I'd really want to keep coming back to that person and, and just sort of like kind of joining with them a bit in their struggle or in their, you know, I know we don't say resistance anymore, but within their sort of resistance to the idea of reflections being helpful, kind of joining up with them and, and just exploring you know, or checking in periodically. How about this idea? You know, open-ended questions, what about that? Or, you know, hey, let's, how about we do a role play later on and, and kind of see how this would, would fit. And then it's like, again, the, these, the expectation isn't for them to become, you know, MI researchers or, or, you know, to get necessarily to some gold standard. It's, you know, for them to be perhaps open to how reflective listening or maybe some other concept in, in MI could add to what they're already doing. I think there's so many rich elements to what you're saying there, Seb. And I think that there are just multiple levels at which we work with that stuff. One is how we structure the training. So from early on, kind of talk about reflective listening and talk about surface versus depth level reflections. And and mentioning early on that if it feels like we're going nowhere with our reflections, it may be that we're, we are tending to stay on the surface. And I'm moving my hand like I'm on the surface right now, folks, for those of you at home. And we really want to help them go deeper and sort of encouraging them to say, okay, let's see if we can go a little deeper and see what happens. So we've already plowed that field a little bit. But I also love the element that you're saying there of let's be researchers together around this issue. We're not going to collect data, but you're going to get your personal data here. And let's see what we discover um in that process and that's a real joining and we've talked already today about the importance of that in terms of listening and we're doing that with the people we work with now and then 
I do think that there the opportunities to see something in person really matters. Like for some of us, it's just really hard to to be able to believe it until we've actually seen what it might look like. And so inviting that person to play that person they have in mind, or if they're unwilling to do it, somebody else in the room is willing to do it. You know, they're out there. And so that it's a real easy invitation saying, hey, somebody help us out. Who can play this client that, you know, Seb is talking about right now? Somebody out here can. I know you can. And somebody hops in and they're willing to do it. And that's great. And so we we're playful with it and we have some fun. So, again, I think it's that attitude that you were talking about, Glenn, that we take in relationship to this, that this is not a problem. This is something worth exploring that, you know, that what you're bringing up really matters. And I think this is the last thing that I would say here is that what this practitioner is saying is I want to help my clients and I don't want to do something that I don't think is going to be helpful to them. And I want to acknowledge that and I want to support them and affirm them for taking that stance in this work. Yeah. And that's, that's such an important awareness just again to understand the, the intention of the other and to recognize that more often than not, no matter what's happening, there is some form of positive intention. And if we can tap into that positive intention and explore how they're currently endeavoring to achieve that and then what other ways they might go about it to bring that about for themselves. And if we have ideas or thoughts, we're happy to share them with them. Uh, But again, what we both have in common is we both want their client to succeed and we will take we will take guidance from them as to what it is they know that we don't know about their client group, and then we can explore what is it in an MI that you think you could use, or what else do you think you could use to get this person to where you want them to be, and whatever that way that is, yeah, go for it. Yeah, yeah. we support you in that. Yes, Glenn, what, what's your second question? Okay, so the next one is is. Um, very often when, when introducing affirmations to people, and we know from the research how important affirmations are in relation, relationship development, but also in, in individuals' experiences of themselves or being witnessed, people often ask, what if people think you're being disingenuous, disingenuous, I can't even say it, disingenuous, I still can't say it, even when I'm doing it slowly. <laughs> okay, let me, let me try it again. You're trying really hard. <laughs> what if people think you're not being genuine? <laughs> that works. Yes. Okay, so here, this is for the edit then. <laughs> so people often ask, what if people think uh, you're not being genuine when offering affirmations? How do you stop them from feeling patronized? Hmm. Boy, what a good and multi-level question. I think the first answer that I would have, sorry, Seb, I just hopped right in. Did no, you want to take that no, one go first? For it. It's all you. I would start out with, we can't stop them from feeling patronized if that's what they're feeling. So again, it's sort of the other person's experience of all of that. But I think what we can do is be attuned to their reaction and recognize that, hey, what we just did didn't land in the manner that we wanted it to land. Um, so I think it's uh, it's that same stance that we're constantly 
sort of talking with MI practitioners about it is that your client is going to be your teacher here. You're going to learn from how they respond to what you do. And if you see a look on your client's face, like what you just said, like, they, you know, they're just uh, bit into something sour, you'll know that, yeah, that didn't land the way I want. And then I think you just need to do a repair attempt at that point. And that is you acknowledge, hey, what I just said seems like it landed weird for you. So that's how I handle that. It's a straightforward kind of observation statement um, and then see what they have to say from there. And if it's if they say, yeah, I feel like you're being patronizing for me, say I apologize in a very direct way, say that that was not my intent at all. And I'm sorry there. Here's what I was trying to say. And then go back and redo it in a manner that works to avoid that patronizing tone. And I, for me, has to do with finding behavioral evidence of the thing that I'm saying. So if I'm talking about the person being a good parent, I don't say that they're a good parent. I talk about how they observe and work with their kids and they try to provide what they can with the resources they have and I and the observations of how they've done that over time. And that's what I'm drawing on. So whatever the example is going behavioral, but I think it really starts with Okay, sorry, that didn't work the way that I intended it to. Mm. Um, let me back up here. Yeah, well, I love the the idea of transparency there too, and and just being really as genuine as you can, and you know, not to say that you wouldn't feel defensive because just like the patient might, the client might feel patronized, you might feel defensive, but but then to kind of recognize that and then be prepared to to apologize even, you know, which, uh, which, you know, maybe we, we could all get better at and be, you know, embrace a bit more and acknowledge the times where we messed up or fall short. And, uh, yeah, I like the behavioral idea too, that just sort of being specific with what it is that they're doing rather than using this kind of broad statements like good or, or whatever it might be. I think, well, I, I feel like one way that I've responded to this is similar to how you guys talked about my question from before by kind of making it an opportunity for that person who's asking the question, who's maybe unsure about the use of affirmations, I guess sort of affirming their desire to either to, to have something that's effective or, or to not be patronizing, right? And so, yeah, you're really wanting to make sure that the things that you say to your clients are that are effective or helpful or whatever that might be. So I, I, I usually have some, some version of that as an, as an opener. And then, you know, one of the ways I get into it too is, is more of the practicality of it. It's a bit like what you were talking about there, David, about the behavioral part of it. There's something that I, I wish I remember the first person I, I heard this from, but the idea of being understated as an MI practitioner, I think is something that we all strive for. So, Meaning we often will use phrases like, uh, so you might be considering a change in that area, right? And the use of the phrase might be is, is an example of understate statement, right? And, and I think the same can go with affirmations as a way to like be cautious about overselling or overdoing it, right? So instead of saying, you are an amazing parent, you might say, observing your children carefully is, is, is something that's important to you. 
you know, and, and without using awesome, extraordinary, excellent, amazing kind of language, right? So just as a way to so it then then might have less of a risk of it feeling patronizing or, or like, wait a minute, you don't really know me that well. How can mm. you make such a grand statement? Mm. So it's just yeah. recognizing the efforts that the individuals are making rather than the outcomes of what it is that they're doing. And if it's okay, then because this ties into the, the third question I have, which is how are affirmations and compliments different? And it sounds like that's where we're, we're beginning to explore is, you know, that you are awesome. You know, you're a brilliant parent. You know, I think you can do that. They, they are the, the compliments. And so when, when people ask what's the difference between a compliment and affirmation, how, how would you respond to that? <laughs> well, it's interesting because it recently, and we'll see as uh, Bill and Steve release their MI4, we'll see that we've got two levels of affirmations, kind of simple and complex. And simple affirmations can have to do with praise and compliments and some of those things, where the more complex ones are some of the ones we've been describing. I'm not a big fan of that distinction. I'll just put that out there. And I'm not saying anything to you two that I haven't said to Bill directly around all this um, or Steve. So I'm not talking out of school. I'm saying the same thing that I think when we lump those two things together that we undermine the value of the affirmation that it's different it's qualitatively different and we really want to work towards offering those sorts of things now there's nothing wrong with compliments or praise but they they have a limited place and I like to think about it as they have their impact from the outside in on people so it's my observation of you versus affirmations, which work from the inside out. It's like we're simply saying we see this within you and mm -hmm. notice this. And so it's not like I'm telling somebody something they don't know. They experience that from within when they hear it and say, yeah, I guess that's true. I hadn't thought about it that way, but it did take courage or it, um, it did take resourcefulness or whatever that thing is. At the same time, recognizing cultural differences around this, I mentioned earlier, Lynn Johnston, she's from Scotland. Over in Scotland, they don't do the things the same way we do out here on the West Coast of the U.S., you know, where we're hanging crystals and burning incense and things like that. You know, the, the, for them, a strong compliment might be, yeah, that wasn't half bad. You know, and for us, it's, oh, that's amazing, fabulous, because those are language and cultural contexts mm. that we need to be mindful of. So I, I would say you need to know the environment you're working with and the people you're working with and, and titrate your responses there. But I think compliments work from the outside in, affirmations from the inside out. Yeah, that's a nice distinction and, and certainly one that can inform us about are we setting ourselves up as the expert by by offering a compliment by saying I think you can, whereas the the other way is looking in to see what what is it about them that makes me think they can, and then naming that. Is it their determination? Is it their focus? Is it their drive? Is it their compassion? Is it their commitment? Is it their doggedness? Characteristics or assets or values that animate them on a daily basis. Um, that we are then beginning to be curious about is how is what animated you this far? How can you use that to animate you in a slightly different way? Yeah, this distinction, yeah, it comes up a lot. I, I and and I'm definitely interested to hear this this idea of you know simple and complex affirmations as Bill and Steve uh, are kind of finishing up 
the fourth edition of the text. I think a concept that trainees have resonated with when wrestling with this one is thinking of praise as a form of judgment. And a lot of times you'll hear, you see people in the audience kind of tilt their heads and kind of wrestle with that notion. And, and it, it is a form of judgment. And I will also often say, if you happen to praise somebody, I, I'm not telling you you're doing harm to them. Uh, you know, this isn't about creating a rigid rule of never saying good job to somebody, but just to be aware that when you're praising somebody and saying good job, you are assuming the role of someone who is bestowing your judgment or giving a thumbs up or a thumbs down. And if you rely on it solely as the way to identify strength, then it becomes less about the other person and more about what you approve and don't approve. Also, what happens if you get into the habit of, of good jobbing somebody a lot, then also know what happens when you don't offer that and think about the impact of the absence of a response like that and what that might feel like for somebody. So I, I, I do some, some work in the, in, around those lines. Um, and, but I, I guess I also think about something that I am affirming of another person is very likely to be something that they, a strength of theirs that they will likely utilize with whatever change process that they're going through that I'm helping them with. And so I, I think of it as like, I want them to have the idea of walking out the door with this strength within them that I've highlighted or recognized in them. I haven't given it to them, right? Cause it's in them, but you know, the idea of them walking out the door with maybe a, a renewed sense of their determination or care as a parent or, or, you know, whatever it might be, as opposed to them walking out the door with saying, oh, my therapist thinks I'm great. That may be a less powerful driver for them. I, you know, I think that goes back to what Glenn, you were saying at the beginning about a sense of capacity that people, when we listen to them and they hear we're, we're saying those things that they walk away with. And I, I do think that this is one of those things that becomes more titrated over time when we're working with somebody, it may be general capacity to begin. And then as we move deeper into the change process, it becomes more titrated to the possibilities that they're considering for change and how do their strengths sort of link up with whatever that is that they're working on. Because sometimes early on, people are feeling pretty downtrodden, depending on the circumstance we're working within and just feeling like they have any, any strengths to build on is an important place to begin. And then from there towards which ones can I use? Fantastic. So gents, I'm conscious of our time. So I'm keen to move, move on to the next and final round of questions. So David, what's your final question? Okay. I'm, I'm going to go easy. So that it's a shorter question. I'm originally, I was going to ask what is motivation, but that would take too long. So <laughs> let me ask this question. What's the best way to learn MI? In your experience as an MI trainer, given you guys are experts, you've talked with all these different MI trainers and thinkers, what's your opinion about the best way to learn MI? My mind immediately goes to, how did I learn it? Because that's what worked for me. And it was, I think it was that being introduced to motivation, I recognize some of it in what I already knew about the nature of how I wanted to help. And certainly in all of the people we've ever interviewed in the podcast, 
people who, who practice MI share that idea that the, the music that is motivational viewing was in them before they met motivational viewing. That the MI is almost like the notes, the, the transcription of the music that's already in you. And that it's about how do we help people find the natural experience of who they are, the very nature of motivation, the very nature of the spirit of MI, which is the who you are is in you. So let's go looking. And if it happens to be motivational interviewing that speaks to you, then let's look at what MI, what other people have discovered about MI. We talk about these things called open-ended questions. Let's try them. We talk about affirmations. Let's explore that and see what happens. Very often I would ask my, my trainees, why have you chosen this career? Why have you chosen helping? Is it, why are you in the helping game? And... It's it's always to do with I want to, I, I I want to help people I enjoy helping people I light up and I help people, and it's about recognizing those are my needs I am instinctively wanting to help people, and it's how then do I have those needs met How do I know I've been helpful, and how else can I have those needs met that doesn't involve a client changing their behaviour, because again it's remembering if I base my success as a helper on client behaviour change I'm going to get my heart broken. Because there's so much has to happen before the behavior, the client changes their behavior. But if I want to be helpful, then it is going back to that first point, which is I can learn to listen with curiosity. I can learn to listen with an open heart. I can learn to believe in the the instinct of another human being, and that that when you look inside yourself as a practitioner, if that resonates for you, follow that path. If it's something different. Follow that path because what you're supposed to be is already decided. It's You're just here to help find it out. And what we do in Motivational Interviewing is we try to help you find that using this approach. CBT does it this way. Psychodynamics does it this way. Support groups do it a different way. So I think the best way for you to learn MA is, is to, first of all, check how does it sound to you? When you see someone do it, what, what do you think about that? Does, do you recognize it? Do you recognise what it what it is they're doing that you're trying to do? Well, okay, trust your experience of what it is you're witnessing and follow that flow. And what the trainer will do is teach you how to recognise it and then how to structure it. We'll teach you open-ended questions. We'll teach you affirmations. We'll teach you how to word your affirmations. We'll teach you to structure reflective statements. We'll teach you to put summaries together. We'll teach you the dance, and then as you get more comfortable, we'll tell you, let your flair go. You know, throw, throw your hips about if you want, but you're here to dance. Which dance do you prefer to do? Instinctively, that's what I would say. It's, if you're going to be an MBA practitioner, it's already in you. It's a really interesting notion, Glenn, yeah. It's basically uh, kindle the love for the music to begin with, and then afterwards, once you've done that and continue to build it, then we can start overlaying the structure on it mm. and start with really loving it and making sure that that's what you want to do. Mm. Uh, how about for you, Seb? Well, I, just, yeah, just a, a reaction to what Glenn said. I, I, it seemed like several of our questions, there was an element of going back to the person asking and kind of, drawing out from them it just seemed like a, a real theme throughout a lot of this exercise here of our our top questions but there was a different version of that there for you glenn <clears throat> um i i guess for me 
the best way to learn it, a lot of people, especially people that are asking trainers to come to their group or to, you know, to, to offer a training, training, they're quite um, focused on the, like the front end, you know, do you need, how many hours do you need, you know, one day or two days or three days or, and I think over time, it, maybe I overdo this a bit or overstate it a bit. I think more recently I've said, you know what? It almost doesn't matter what you do at the front end. If what you want is for your agency, your clientele, the people signing up for your training to actually change what they do with clients, and it doesn't really matter. You know, they could read a book. They could watch a webinar. They could sit and listen to me for one hour or six hours or 12 hours. After a month, if that's all they've had, then they're probably not going to change all that much. Some might. I mean, can't say it's impossible. But so I, it's just sort of emphasizing the importance of having an opportunity for them to practice, practice with each other, certainly, and get some feedback from each other if that's possible within the, the group, the, the agency or whatever it is. And, um, and certainly if they have the opportunity to get some follow-up coaching with someone who does MI coding, for instance, even to that level of, of detail, or it, even if it's just another MI trainer who could have a listen and give them some ideas and have a conversation about it, that that's where you start really seeing, um, you start seeing the difference. Yeah, that's, that's a really important point for me as well, is that it's the classroom experience is a good introduction. And for some people, it's enough to light the fire and they will flare up and they'll get on with it. But for most of us, we needed someone else to be that extra guide, the, the supervisor, and to be the mentor, to be the one that listened to our practice, to be curious with us, to model the finer detail of the practice so that we could get used to it. And uh, I think there's no substitute to other than experiencing it with someone who's already doing it. It's a fascinating question, and it's, it's funny because you can answer it at many different levels, kind of like a lot of the questions that we have here. There, there is some science about there, about things that are important along the way. And I think there's an awful lot of art, and I don't think we know for sure around all these things. I think you've hit the big ones there, guys, about it's not so much what you do at the beginning, but what you do to continue to build and maintain the skills that really matter. And there are lots of different ways to get there. But one of the ways that's really important is getting some coaching and feedback from somebody who has more skills than you do, essentially. They don't have to be an expert, but they have more skills. And that's sort of getting back to some of Vygotsky's ideas about proximal, the zone of proximal development. You want to be working in this sweet spot where you're not able to do something quite yet, but it's not so difficult that you can't do it, but you need help from somebody who's just a little bit better at it than what you are along the way to assist you in getting there. But how to do that, there's lots of different ways, it seems to me. And so finding the way that you're willing to do and follow through on matter around all that. Yeah, and again, it just comes back to that point that we keep identifying is our journey into becoming good practitioners mirrors the very journey we're inviting our clients to take with us, which is change. And there are, it's multi-layered and there's lots of different ways of doing it. And what what's working for you and how's that going? Trust your own experience of it. And if you're noticing that you're hitting against a brick wall, there is a way of asking for support. And there are other people out there who, who can offer support and guidance towards helping you find the way forward. So that that's reassuring for all of us is that we're in this together, guys. 
you know, and that it's not something that that by reaching out there are a lot of MA practitioners who are keen to be curious with you. And certainly I know or any trainer I know, they value a student coming up at the end of a training and asking them a specific question and going, what do you think and how can I do that? And offering for guidance, because that's, that's what we're there for. We're there to support people's development. And if it's contacting us after a training, most people are really delighted to hear from students afterwards. They say, you can think about this or what have you done? Where else can you go? So with that in mind, then let's get the very last question of the night then, Sebastian. Yeah. Well, this is a question about time uh, and the lack of time. And, and I think, you know, whether, I mean, I've trained physicians and nurses and teachers and therapists and, you know, all, all of the above. And it doesn't seem like anybody has enough time. Um, you know, I, I think it's documented primary care physicians. I, I, I think it's, they have an average of about seven to nine minutes. So that doesn't feel like a lot of time. So, but you know, there's plenty of therapists out there that have, you know, the kind of 50 minute hour who feel like, gosh, we could, I wish I had a whole other hour. So, uh, so the question is, um, I just, how do I do am I in, in my work? I don't have enough time to do this. It is a really good question, right? And this is one that Bill Miller has responded to before is if you don't have any time, well, goodness, don't waste any by not listening. You know, So I, that's a little paraphrase on what he's had to say, but I think that's awfully important. What I like to say is I, I give an example of my endocrinologist. So I'm a person who lives with type 1 diabetes and I go in to see my doc and I know he's got about 10 minutes, you know, that seven to nine minutes you were just talking about, Seb, in those settings. And here's what he would do. He'd come in, he'd greet me, say hello, he'd wash his hands and sit down on the stool and say, so what, do we, what are we going to talk about today? So what he did was give me the impression that we had all day. Mm. That I knew we only had 10 minutes or so. I know he has lots of people out in the waiting room he has to seize. But by giving me the impression that we had time, I didn't feel rushed to, you know, or like I wasn't going to get to the things that weren't on my list of things. And I could put out the things that were most important. And we got done in a hurry. And I had a great relationship with my doc who was never trained in motivational interviewing, but he did have this sense of how do we create spaciousness? And I think part of that is by just willing to not give into that feeling of being rushed to providing enough space saying here's the time frame we have 10 minutes what should we do in that 10 minutes worth of time mm. that's going to be useful to you so i think for me that's part of is helping people sort of reframe that yeah you got this time but i what i want to do is try and create some space so how can you do that and when have you done that before and how has that worked for you when you've been able to do that what does it look like mm. but i do think it's the constant push that people feel especially in the medical profession where they got to do a certain amount of thing in a certain amount of time the other thing and this is one of those where we can get into some counter arguments around things and so we need to be really mindful of coming in and giving advice and kind of telling people what to do and say okay you you could do that tell me about how that works for you are people doing that are they not do they do what you ask you to do do you end up having those conversations again over time 
So if it's working great for you, fine. And this is going back to something you said earlier, Seb, that continue to do that. Or maybe it was you, Glenn, who had said that. Continue to do it. If it's working for you, continue to do it. If it isn't working for you as well as you would like, perhaps there's something here of value. So it's, you know, providing an opportunity. And I'll be quiet. Go ahead, Glenn. Mm. No, it, it, what I was what what came up for me is the expectation that's created for us as practitioners, that the need of the agency is such that, you know, we have X amount of time, we have X amount of clients, and we need to show our worth as an agency so that we can get funded, whether we're here in the UK where we get NHS money directly from the government or where it's a client paying for, for our time and we have to be accountable for their outcomes compared to their uh, their financial input. So that the expectation that we create for ourselves, and it goes back to the idea of the mindset or the heart set, if I think I can't, then I'm probably right. If I don't think this is long enough, then I'm probably right. If I don't think this client can change, then I'm probably right. And for a number of reasons. One is that I will be transmitting that belief that I don't think this is long enough. And what, what impact does that have on the client themselves where they're with a practitioner who doesn't seem to believe that this is going to work just by their tone, the way they hold themselves, or the questions they asked. But also, if the client does change, then chances are we're not, we're not expecting to see it. So it might pass us by, and we've missed the opportunity to reinforce that for the client as well. So again, it's back to that, the importance of the mindset that we enter into the helping relationship with, which is, from a strength-based perspective, I accept you for who you are. I recognize that you got here without me. You got this far without me. And you've been through many, many challenges. Most of them are bigger than the one that you and I are about to talk about. And you got through that. And I'm curious about the person that did that. And today we have 10 minutes for me to find out about that about you. This is the mindset. So I'm not saying this directly to the client. I'm coming at this. You are really interesting to me. And I've got 10 minutes to find out how you're going to create the momentum for yourself. And if there's something I can give you in those 10 minutes, I will offer it to you to add to what it is you're doing. And I think that's that would be the, the advice I'd be giving any trainer or any practitioner who is saying, I don't have the time, and saying, look, change your mindset. You know, when you first asked, asked that question, I started to laugh because, you know, you hear of the philosophers where they say, Time doesn't exist. You know, there only is now. You know, it's it's an illusion. Um, so there's there's an aspect of that too. Um, stop stop creating boundaries for yourself that don't don't need to exist. Uh, don't don't restrict yourself to the possibility of what can happen in the next ten minutes. Bring an open mind and see what happens. Yeah, I think again, I think there's a, a theme and a thread here of of hearing somebody's concern whether it's I don't have time or not my clients or, you know, patronizing or, you know, and, and just acknowledging the desire for the other person to want to do a good job and want to meet their needs. And, and, you know, an assumption perhaps that, that they're actually are curious. They, they, they are hearing what I have to offer about motivational interviewing. They're thinking about how it fits in their world and they're having a genuine struggle with, how am I supposed to do this? You know, I, I, I learned it one way. I've been doing it one way for a year or 10 years or 20 years or whatever. So I, I try to offer some of that at, on the front end. I also like to back up and maybe say something that I should say at the beginning of a training. And 
the point of my being in a training and offering this information isn't for them to then the, the expectation that it be an all or nothing endeavor here, right? Like, you know, some, a physician or a nurse or a therapist might be like, okay, wow, I am all in on this and I am, I'm going to strive for a two to one reflection to question ratio and, and a average of four on, you know, evoking change talk or, you know, all the, the things on our coding mechanisms. But it might be that someone, it, it isn't whether someone does more of something, maybe what they end up doing is doing less of something. Maybe, maybe it's, it's, you know, less advice without permission. Maybe that's just the, there's just one thing that's different from somebody going through a training and, and they recognize like, gosh, I, I really need to be more open to the possibility that someone's not ready to hear what I have to say. So let me check in with them first about that. Maybe that's enough of a shift to be really helpful for that person in the 10 minutes or 20 minutes or 50 minute hour. And the expectation certainly isn't that they have to do every single thing that I'm saying. Yeah. And alongside of that, then is that thought that just arose from me as you spoke, I said, which is, it's recognizing if if you want someone else to change and what you're doing isn't working, you have to change. So if you want someone else to change, you go first. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, we have that quip around our organization. Change is hard. You go first. That's yeah. a joke. <laughs> right? yeah. It's usually we need to look at ourselves. Yeah, you know? yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a real leveler. Like, I, I love the way yeah. you say that. You know, if change is really hard. You go first. And it throws it up to people. You know, what, yeah. what, what are we asking these people to do? What are we mm-hmm. asking our clients to do? Mm-hmm. And how big a deal really is it for them, for them to consider changing their diet, their alcohol, drug relationship, their, their lifestyles? Okay, so what are you prepared to change to help them achieve that? Or are you already perfect? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, and, and speaking of parallels, right? So if, if, if a physician is working with someone with multiple health conditions and potential areas to change, you might start with, well, gosh, there's a lot here for you. There's a lot that you're considering. Well, what's, what's the first step for you? What is one thing that you might start doing today, even if it's a small thing? And maybe that's the same kind of idea to a person who's saying that they don't have time. And, and to, to understand and, you know, express a genuine curiosity about where they're coming from and, and just be curious with them about that. What, of the things that we've talked about today or in this weekend or whatever in this course, what is something that you think might be helpful that you might be willing to try? Well, as you described the, the, how you might be in a conversation with someone that they might be taking away, let's, let's recognize it. Thank you, David, for your time and your contributions. And the idea for today's episode, working on that, the three tops or the, the top ten idea from a sports perspective. As we always do at the end of the, of, of the podcast, is just ask your guest, what else is happening in your life that may be capturing your attention that, Maybe it may be related, may not be, but just something that's that you're interested in right now that you'd be happy to share with us. Yeah, well, I'm always interested in learning something new, and so I try to read broadly beyond just motivational interviewing and those kinds of things to see what else is going on out there in the world. And I've been really interested in this idea of training and all the rest. But I have to say the the one thing that has probably got me my 
interest and sort of, as you were saying, animates me the most right now is I'm going to be a grandfather for the first time come this spring. You know, God willing, everything goes well here for my eldest child. We're going to have a granddaughter and man, I can't wait to see what that new role is going to bring. So I'm pretty fired up about it. You know, this idea of get to love this child and then you get to hand them off to their to her parents, you know, so that's pretty exciting. Yeah, the richness of doing the best things a parent can do and then leaving the, the heavy lifting to someone else. Yeah. Yeah, lovely, yeah. beautiful. Well, congratulations to you. And is it your son? It's my daughter. Your daughter. Well, congratulations daughter. to you and your daughter and, and your daughter's partner. And uh, yes, as you say, I wish, wish them all the very best in, in the run-up and, and following the birth of, of your new granddaughter. So, And if people have questions for you after today, then David... How would they go about contacting you? Yeah, probably I'm on LinkedIn. You can find me there. Um, I can't give you all the specifics because I don't go there often enough to remember them all, but right. you can find me there. And on um, through the organization that I work for, uh, Prevention Research Institute, you can find us at primeforlife.org and contact me through the website there. And we can also put out the email address. I know you guys can do that at the end. Excellent. Happy to do that too. Brilliant. Great. Well, David, thanks so much for uh, for joining us. We had a feeling this would be fun. It certainly was, and I'm um, glad we could, you know, tap into our shared love of top fill in the blank number lists uh, <laughs> and in relation to the work that we we do and, and we love. So, thanks for joining us. Uh, it was great fun, guys. Thanks for having me. Thanks, David. Thanks, everybody. Bye, everyone.